This is episode 99 of The Creative Giant Show. I'm Charlotte Gilkey. Thanks so much for joining me today. Whether we're content creators, managers, leaders, or customer service reps, we're all in the teaching business. Brianne Dick joins me again to continue the conversation about making better learning experiences that work for our learners and work for us. Hint, it's not about the content. A quick plug here. Come join us at the Creative Giant Campfire, our free Facebook group. We'll be having conversations about podcast episodes there, as well as other micro-posts, prompts, and the occasional Facebook Live broadcast. You can find it by searching Creative Giant Campfire on Facebook. Ready? Let's do this. Welcome to the Creative Giant Show, where we go behind the scenes about what it means to live a life full of creative and professional success. Creative giants are talented, renaissance souls with a compassion-fueled bias towards action. Now, here is your host, Charlie Gilkey. If you're struggling to keep up with processing your email, SaneBox might be just the tool you need. It has saved me hours of time each month, and the amount of peace of mind I get from it is priceless. SaneBox sorts through your email and moves all of the trivial stuff into a different folder, so the only messages in your inbox are the ones you actually want to see. Aside from removing all of the junk so you can focus on the messages that matter, there's this great feature called the black hole. Move an email into that folder and you'll never hear from the sender again. One and done. Just how we like it. Because email can be such a bear and keep you from finishing the stuff that matters, we worked out a great deal for our listeners. Visit sanebox.com forward slash giant and they'll throw in an extra $25 credit on top of the two-week free trial. You don't have to enter the credit card information unless you decide to buy, so there's really nothing to lose. Again, that's S-A-N-E-B-O-X dot com forward slash giant. Alrighty, Creative Giants. I'm delighted to reintroduce you to Brianne Dick. Brianne joined us for episode 30 of the Creative Giant Show, and that one's definitely worth a listen to. Brianne is the founder of MNIB Consulting, a boutique online consultancy that helps owners scale their world-class training companies. She regularly consults on flagship products and programs, creative live courses, live events, and workshops for thought leaders and influencers such as best-selling authors Chris Gilbo, Tara Gentili, and Natalie Sisson. Her results-driven strategies help micro-businesses create programs and products that customers can't stop talking about. Her unique approach blends operations management, learning and product strategy, and business model development. Brianne, thanks so much for joining me again on the show. It was delightful to have you for, what was that, episode 30? 30, and we're now approaching 90, so great to have you back um, riffing about adult learning and, you know, making content, not just for the sake of making content, but making content for the sake of transforming people and actually making them better off for the creations that we've done. So thanks for joining me again today. Thank you. I am so excited to just jam with you and see what kind of trouble we can get ourselves into. We always, yeah, trouble, trouble will be found. (laughs) What we do with that is another matter. So let's, let's really bring everybody into the conversation. So let's do a, a before and after here. 1995, let's say. Remember 1995, you actually had to like go to a physical place and get content and, you know, read these things called books and, you know, talk to people who knew stuff. And that's 1995, let's say 96, because we could just do a a 20 year jump. 2016, 
Um, libraries still exist. I love libraries. I love going to the library. But the majority of us in most places of the world that we're talking to now just jump on Google, right? Yeah. Um, and so we go, we've gone from a place where information was accessible, but a little bit hard to acquire, to now it's everywhere. And we're experiencing infowhelm or um, what was it? Stacy Howell a lot, infobesity, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, we got infobesity going on. And yet, we're both creators, right? Brand and our most people listening to the show are creators of some type. So it's this weird place to where we're all experiencing infobesity. And yet, we're still creating more content. We're still creating more courses. Something's got to give. If you're not careful, it's going to be your brain. It's going to, <laughs> going to explode with all of these opportunities because, I mean, yeah, it's, it's such a great example. 96 to now 2016 when we're recording this, 20 years. The stat that I like to say is that they had, Apple hadn't even started talking about inventing the iPhone until 1999. Like, it's not even that it wasn't invented. They hadn't even started planning to invent the first iPhone until 1999. And you know, it's a little bit funny because I am a big geek. I love my technology, but I was a smartphone resistor until about three months ago. I got my first ever smartphone because I didn't want to give in to this hyper-connected, always online world. Like I wanted to be able to escape from information overload. But now I'm just like everyone else in their smartphone and, you know, always checking and checking stuff. And, you know, if you have a question, you don't have to try and remember to look it up when you get home or when you go to the library or whatever. Now you pull out your phone and the answer is presumably right there. So quick diversion. Why, why now, Brianne, what, what was the final straw that you like, I got to get the smartphone? <laughs> Honestly, uh, it was when I went to the, uh, the conference that you and I were both at a few months ago, I was traveling to the States and traveling is hard without a smartphone, especially for me, I'm in Canada. So this is international travel. And, uh, you know, I was helping to run that event and it just was like, okay, I just need to be able to connect with people and, uh, you know, the business finances were in such a place that, you know, that was a drop in the bucket in terms of an operational cost. I did make a rule for myself, though, which was that uh, if it's something that can potentially wait until I'm back on my computer, I don't use my phone for it. So I have almost no apps. I have cellular data Wi-Fi or cellular data uh, only enabled for like maps and that kind of stuff. You know, my browser, no browser access, nothing like that when I'm out and about. And, uh, you know, it's working not bad every once in a while, you know, that temptation, the itchy, itchy thumb, like, oh, I want to go check it, want to go check it. But, you know, we're about three months on now and I'm doing not too bad. Yeah. Um, winning game there is taking Safari off of the phone. Like when, when you don't need it for travel, um, because Safari and all social media in a different way. Um, yeah. of course, yeah, there's while we're no social media. Yeah. <laughs> but while we're hanging out here though, Facebook Live has actually because um it's you have to record it through the Facebook app on your phone. Um yeah. it's like, ah, I don't want to reinstall it every time I'm gonna do a Facebook Live. Um and oh what are we, but anyways, um, <laughs> have you have you noticed anything about your consumption patterns that have changed? Um a little bit. I mean, I, I had an iPad, so that was kind of my, you know, my uh, device that I could take me, with me when I was on the go. And I actually, 
uh, I use that less now. Like that tends to, you know, kind of stay, you know, in, in the bedroom for nighttime reading, that kind of thing. And so that's changed. And now it's very much more, you know, I'm either on my laptop and then I'm in, I guess what I would consider like an active consumption or production mode. You know, I'm, I'm engaged with what I'm reading or I'm engaged with social media or that sort of thing. Um, and then the phone, you know, when I'm at home, I'm on Wi-Fi. That'll be kind of, you know, a, a quick check-in, a quick pop-in, but I'm not, I'm not engaging to the same depth or with the same richness. And I will say it's really nice to be able to carry a high-quality camera in your pocket. Like, there are serious advantages to that. <laughs> there are serious advantages. You know, the reason, one of the things I'm really curious about is, um, so earlier this year, I got an iPhone 6. Um, and for the longest time, I did not like it. I still, I don't like the size of it. Anyways, <laughs> uh, but I was thinking, you know, I actually don't use the phone that much. I use the data and such all the time. So do I just need an iPad mini? Yeah. Right. Did I buy the wrong device? But I think, you know, your point about it is, is that, um, you know, the context that I gave was about the ubiquity of information, mm-hmm. But there's also the vehicle of the information as the technologies that we use, right? And so um, it's not just idle rant, but as you change the technology that you have to access information, you also change um, a lot of the abundance of information. You change your learning patterns, you change your consumption patterns, um, you change your cognitive patterns as well. Not just the, the, the learning cortexes, but actually the behavior or the reflexes, everything like that changes. Um, it's something actually that when we're working with clients and they're developing these online courses, online programs, one of the things that we get them to spend a lot of time thinking about is what is the environmental context that their customer will be consuming this course in? You know, are you developing a course that's for a parent of a child under five? So that parent's going to have at most three minutes at a time of uninterrupted time. It's probably going to be on their phone. You know, they're not going to be sitting at a computer. They're not going to be, you know, having quiet versus, you know, maybe you're, uh, you're selling to someone who's a student and they're planning on consuming this content on the bus on the way to college or university. And so they're, uh, you know, they can't take notes, but they could maybe watch a video or they could listen to a longer form audio. And so, so much of it, especially because we're so mobile now with the technology and with the information, a lot of it is, well, what's the context? You know, everything from how long do you have their attention for to, you know, how are they going to engage? How are they going to be willing to engage? And what also are they expecting within that context, because your expectations of a podcast like this one is a whole lot different from your expectations of a webinar or an audiobook. And that's all basically audio content, but your expectations are so different. Your expectations are so, so different. And even um, as we played around with different forms of content, um, it's harder to write just a long written essay that doesn't really have like the action steps and takeaways and things like that. When we approach that, that medium where we want, you know, some action, especially in a blog post or an article or something like that. However, many of us are willing to listen to a 15 minute audio essay where someone is explaining an idea and taking through those different things. And we're like, okay, I could do it then. But when I'm in front of my computer, I'm in active learning mode. I'm in active doing mode. So you got to give me active sort of content there. 
One of the things I'm experimenting right now with on our site and our blog is actually doing Facebook Live as the content generation because I prefer to speak than to write. That's just the way I process, you know, that's, that's my form of creativity. Uh, but then taking that video and turning it into a written article, whether it's mostly transcribed or, you know, just even my notes that that's the show notes basically. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's fascinating because yeah, it'll be a 15 minute Facebook live and you go and you turn that, you know, even just a transcription, it's a 2000 word article and nobody will read the 2000 word articles. Cause they'll be like, Oh man, that scroll bar looks like way too small. It means it's a long article, but they'll sit and they'll watch and they'll take action after a 15 minute video. And there's, uh, you know, if we want to really geek out about the research, I was reading a study and it was a couple years ago now, and it was about how to get people to take action after, after a video. Mm-hmm. And they said that a couple of things were interesting. An informal video where it's less produced will get people to take action more than like a really professional studio type setting. Uh, if you show your face, that's another thing that will get people to take action as opposed to just showing slides, that kind of thing. So that's a good tip for anyone who's doing webinars, you know, show your face every once in a while. Um, the sweet spot for length, not surprising, was kind of, you know, five, six minutes for getting mm-hmm. people to take action and that sort of thing. Um, and there was, there was, you know, three or four other things, but it was just, it, the one that stuck out for me was just, you know, don't over polish it. Don't make it super pro. Don't go to a studio. It's a be human, be real. And this was in the context actually of higher education training videos. This was, you know, where students, maybe you would expect more polish. The instructor would just turn on a webcam and start talking to the camera and the students would actually do the exercises afterwards. And I was like, man, we see so many people get freaked out about like, Oh, I need to have like a professional film crew and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, you're actually maybe even getting in your own way by doing that. So here's the pro tip on that. You don't need a professional crew. You do need good sound. Yes. Sound <laughs> is super important. Um, we, we will deal with a 720p grainy video if we can hear you well. But like if we can't, if it's scratchy and just things like that, it's, it's going to be a no-go. You know, so last time we talked about different learning styles, right? And how in some degrees that had been overplayed. And, but some degrees, it's right on. This time, we're talking more about, con- about the context, the environmental context in which people um, will consume content. Something that I've been thinking a lot about, though, is um, going back to Bloom's taxonomy. For the record, Brienne was right. If you go back and listen to episode 30, um, they had changed the model to replace... Um, what was it? Creating an evaluation, right? It yeah. used to be the evaluation was at the top and they flipped it. So for the record, Brienne was absolutely right about that. Um, but I've, I've been thinking about those, the top three of the learning pyramid. So we've got, um, Brienne, I'm, go- I'm not going to screw it up again. So give us Bloom's taxonomy again from right. bottom to top. All right. You have knowing, which is just facts. Like, can you recite a definition? Even if you don't really know what it means, you can recite it. Mm-hmm. Then you have understanding, which is you could, you know, you actually understand it. You could restate it in your own words kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, then you have application. So you could take what you know and understand and actually use it in a kind of within a given context. Those three are considered lower level learning. So knowing, yeah. understanding, and applying. And then the higher level learning is analyzing. So breaking things down into pieces then evaluating, figuring out how those pieces relating, relate to each other. And then creating is the new one that they put at the top. And that's, okay, once you've done all of the breaking down and figuring out how things relate, then you can create something new out of it. 
Yeah, they, they switched those two and they switched them from noun forms to verb forms, right? And so that's why yeah. I had Brianne did it because I was like, let's see, application is still application. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> Although it should be applying, but it is never, applying. isn't yeah. applying. Okay, okay. Yeah. So anyways, same basic things. But what I've been thinking about, you know, um, when it comes to content and creating experiences, which is where we're going, is it seems really, really challenging to get people in the top tier of creating um, analyzing and evaluating in three to seven minutes, yeah. right? We can, we can spit basic facts very, very quickly, but, um, what have you seen or what, what's the research showing about us being able to really get into that higher level learning zone in the, in the quick uh, slices of time that we have available? Well, the biggest thing is to not think of it as an exercise in creating content, Mm -hmm. not think of it as an exercise in creating three to seven minutes worth of content, but instead think of it as setting up three to seven minutes worth of context and then issuing a challenge or a question or creating an action that you want people to do. Because it's not, the problem actually isn't the lack of information, right? Information is at the knowing, understanding, and to an extent, applying level. That's, that's low-level learning. That's what information provides us. And that's why people get so stuck with infobesity, because they, they get stuck in the knowing, understanding, and to an extent, applying levels. But the real challenge is to say, okay, how can I prompt you to engage your decision-making skills, your problem-making skills? How can I ask really good questions that prompt people to act on that knowing and understanding instead of it just being, basically taking it out of the realm of the theoretical and taking it into the realm of, okay, now do something with it. So yeah, I can talk at you. I could talk at you for 20 minutes. But if instead I can give you three minutes of context and then I can ask you three really good questions that maybe they're analysis type questions. You know, what patterns do you see? What do you observe? How does that make you feel? What does that, what resonates with you? Those kinds of questions lead people to do the analysis and the evaluation. And ultimately, I mean, as human beings, we are pattern seekers. We naturally like to find patterns. It's just that sometimes that skill get it's like a muscle, right? We don't exercise that skill. We don't build up that muscle, we focus so much on gaining new information when instead we could just be using some of these really good questions and that would help us put the puzzle together, which helps us see something new that we haven't seen before. Yeah. But, but Brianne, thinking is hard. Decision <laughs> is hard, right? Evaluating is hard. Won't you just tell me what to do? Well, I could. <laughs> Not mean I'm I'm being I'm being rhetorical here, but that's yeah. that's the thing is that um, I think what we what I've learned outside of um, the collegiate learning environment, what I've learned outside of the military learning environment, out of those environments where the um, the takeaway value for the things that were being learned were very much compensated or incentivized. For instance, if you're a college student and you don't do that top tier stuff, then you can't write the essay that you're going to have to write two weeks later. So you have to engage in a way, right? Um, And obviously, if you're um, in the army, and you've got to learn this core skill to, you know, be able to to accomplish the mission, like you got to learn how to do it there, you know, and there's a lot of a lot of pressure to outside of that, though, in our less 
structured learning environments though, and this includes entrepreneurship, what I've experienced is you actually have to sell the takeaway a lot more than people anticipate doing, right? It's not just about here's a, here's this, the skill that you're going to learn. And it's really awesome. Like, no, like, why do I need to learn that? Why does this experience that you're about to take to actually matter to me? Well, this is why uh, I, I went on a rant recently in one of those Facebook lives. And it was like, stop trying to sell your formulas. Stop trying to teach people. Here's the script. Here's the template. Here's, and you know what? There, there are certain times and places when that's appropriate because what Bloom's Taxonomy does is it, you know, it goes from low level to high level and applying is part of the learning journey, right? Applying and using scripts, using templates, learning how to use some of these formulas, that's valid, but that's not the end of the journey. And if you want to truly be successful, if you want to truly be able to create your own, you know, your own IP or your own, whatever it is you want to create and put out in the world, applying other people's formulas is not the end of the journey. It's basically the beginning. Yeah, it's... um here's what I would want to say about this. Whenever we go into a a learning and teaching marketplace, we actually have to address two different things, right? And so since we're largely speaking about the entrepreneurial learning marketplace, there's two things. One as a learner, stop buying the scripts. If you haven't done the scripts you've already done, right? (laughs) Yeah. If you've already done all of them and you need some more scripts and practices, that's fantastic. But if you're buying the programs, people are going to keep making them right? And you're going to keep getting exactly what you don't need, right? So that's on the consumer side. We have some, we have considerable say in what gets created for us in the ways that we want to learn. And you can speak up and say, I don't want that. I do need this, so on and so forth. And you can be more demanding of the people you're buying from. On the creator side though, right? That's also, you know, the weird thing about being a teacher who's also an entrepreneur is the teaching modality a lot of times is so focused on just what people need, right? What are the skills they need? How am I going to get them from A to Z? So on and so forth. And that's fantastic. That's maybe where some of these frameworks are coming from. I I think there were a few people though, a few years ago, they're like, you got to have a proprietary framework. And then everybody came out with a proprietary framework, right? Which makes it sound more than it's like the seven steps I came up with to do this. Right. Yeah, or your signature package. That's a big one. Like in the coaching world, you have to have your signature method or your flagship program. And it's all, you know, you got to boil it down into the seven step method. And I mean, uh, you scroll through Facebook and tell me how many ads you see for training, whether it's in the business space or in a lifestyle space or anywhere in between. And it's always the three step. I mean, I'm doing it too, right? I've got a webinar coming up. It's a three, three step type thing, but it, you can have steps without it being a formula. Yeah. Well, here's the advantage to that. And I'm, I'm, I'm glad that that, hmm, let me pause. I want to be clear about this. The implicit expectation was that um, people teaching, selling basically educational content would come up with a structured learning arc for people. And that's what the proprietary framework or the signature program was. I think that was the expectation. That expectation is not always delivered. Sometimes it's just a catchy name for the same unstructured mess 
that, <laughs> that they had before. Right. And that sounds harsh, but you know, there, there've been times I've come up with some unstructured mess too. Right. So we've all done it in a way, right. When we, when we haven't really focused on that learning arc, that education, those nerdy things like terminal learning outcomes, right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, those types of things. Right. Um, so that's what I wanted to say about that is, is that there's two ways to think about this whole signature program, signature process thing. One is an expectation from learners that it was a, a coherent um, educational pathway. Um, and that has a lot of value to it, like sitting down and saying of all this flotsam and jetsam that I have of content and for all the 80 gazillion ways that I've worked with people, what are, what's a structured way to get through this content so that they can know and then apply and then learn these higher levels of things, right? In a lot of ways, it's, it's not about content. It's about context and, you know, what you're going to do within that context to be able to make it your own. It's, it's, con- it's not content, it's context and curation. That's what the role of the facilitator, the teacher, the product creator, the mentor, the friend, you know, whenever you, it doesn't matter what context you're in, when you're trying to help someone learn something, you know, I'm not a parent. I just spent the weekend with my family at a family reunion. There was a lot of little kids around and you could see as they're teaching their children, they're not trying to give them content. They're looking at the context of what's going on. And then they're trying to create a curated experience, right? Based on what you're experiencing, I'm going to share this vital piece of information. Don't go into the creek without an adult, right? You know, it's not, we're just going to give you information for no reason. It's going to, I'm going to select the right information at the right time. That's going to help you take the appropriate action based on where you're at and what you need right now. And the beautiful thing about that, because so many creators feel that when they create that course, they're like, especially if they have a service-based component to it, right? If I create the course, then they won't hire me. <laughs> well, if you create a course and that's all you know, you probably should not be hired, yeah. right? Because there's still going to be this piece of context that just like if you go to, were to go to any college professor, um, I'm going to pick on economics because I've been on a huge learning journey with economics here. Like you can walk up and say, hey, I've been thinking about all of the literature on, you know, the a scientific approach to entrepreneurship and they start rattling off the six books you need to know, right? Those books don't necessarily live anywhere on the web in the sense of curated, like the six books in this context for this person, for this level, like that's what a good teacher provides, right? It's also interesting because I hear sometimes the opposite. So instead of people saying, well, if I create the course, no one's going to want to hire me. I hear a lot of people say, well, I can't create the course because they need my personal input, you know, how can I create that personalized curated experience in the, in a framework, you know, how can I take my one-on-one coaching or my one-on-one conversations? How can I turn that into something abstract that will work for dozens or hundreds or thousands of people? And it's a balancing act, right? Like we're not trying, again, if you take yourself out of the frame, the mindset of it's all about the content and you instead think about, you know, context and curation, what you're doing is you're creating a space for people to engage in their own learning journey. Uh, you know, my, one of my favorite sayings is you don't need to be the sage on the stage. You want to be a guide on the side. And even if that's not you personally, whatever training materials, whatever curriculum, whatever product you're creating, you want to be helping people to ask those great questions, to come to their own conclusions. Yes, you can have a method and a learning arc and you have outcomes 
for them, but you're not so much saying we're going to come up with the one right, all, all being, all seeing answer as much as I'm going to help you look at the questions, answer them for yourself so that then you can make your own conclusions. And that's how you will achieve this higher level of learning, which ultimately that's a real skill, right? The ability to take and adapt and adjust input information and turn it into something that is actually valuable for you. That's what, that's what learning ought to be about as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. And, and what I would want to say on this is the further, I'm, I'm glad we, we made blooms sort of the anchor for the conversation for this, right? Because the further you go up there, the harder it is to teach those formula, right? Yeah. Um, because at a certain level, um, Brianne and I could probably sit down if we, if someone really made us and think about the 17 different things we think about when we look at a strategic or learning model, right? And say, what, are, what am I looking for? And how am I looking for it? So on and so forth. We probably can do it. It would be really hard though, because that's a certain level of strategic insight. There's a certain level of expertise that we've acquired in the world. There's a certain level of just pattern recognition and repetition that you just can't do that. Um, however, if someone were like, what are the four things that a sales page must have? Okay. We could probably think of like every sales page needs to have that. And oh, because we're both mavens, we'll probably think 13 other things at every <laughs> Yeah, probably. Right? Um, and then forget the most important one. Um, but that's <laughs> a call to action. Needs a call to action. <laughs> needs a call to action. Right? Um, and a good and um, so, yeah. Um, <laughs> and maybe it's, talk about the benefits more so than the process. But, yeah. It's you know. interesting because uh, one of the things I'm seeing a lot of in the online space, I like to say, you know, five years ago, everyone was writing eBooks. And then you couldn't write an ebook anymore. You had to call it a guide. And then you couldn't call it a guide anymore. It had to be a blueprint. And from blueprint, it was a short step away to creating a course or a program. And now the next thing that's coming is certifications or train the trainer. Like that's the next wave that I'm starting to see in the, in the online business, in the entrepreneurial training world. And uh, you know, speaking of Bloom's, the Bloom's taxonomy that we've been talking about has been mental, right? That's the cognitive domain. Um, since Bloom developed that, lots of people have come up with variations for, you know, the affective, emotional side of learning, as well as the, the skill base. But one of the variants that I like is uh, it's based on the, the kinesthetic domain, so the mm -hmm. physical skill domain. But it, I find it really useful when we're talking about how to train people, how to train others. And it starts off with observation. You, you watch what someone else is doing. Then the second thing is you model. Mm -hmm. So you basically kind of mirror what you're seeing them doing. And the third one is you start to recognize standards. So you start to not just observe and model, but you start to see what's good and bad, what's working and not working. The fourth step is to be able to correct your own performance. So now that I recognize the standards in someone else, I can apply them to myself and see where maybe I'm making some of those mistakes. And then the fifth level, in this case, the fifth is the highest, that's where you're able to coach or mentor others. Once you've observed and modeled and recognized the standards and applied them to yourself, then you can start to actually teach and train others. But again, that's not to do with knowing and understanding. It's not to do with content, right? It's about taking what you see, what you observe, what you learn, what that input data is, 
and kind of working it through. If you think of your brain as you know, a filter, you're filtering it through your brain and your neural pathways. And when it comes out on the other side, it's going to be something that's different and uniquely yours. And that's where the value is. Yeah. And part of this process, and this is for trading or anyone who's, who's in front of live people, or especially different audiences of people, is, you know, very clearly reading the room. For instance, um, I, I recognize with the way a lot of people understand me, like that when I am really directive and really commanding, it really triggers the hell out of people, right? And a lot of people, right? Because they're like, whoa, whoa, dude, like <laughs> get off me, right? Even if Brianne said the same thing, in nearly the same way because they perceive Brienne differently, right? And so it's learning to modulate that. It's like, okay, I'm in a room of people who may be anti-authoritarian, right? And so I'm going to speak more softly. I'm going to be more indirect, so on and so forth. In a room where people just really want to make stuff happen and they already have that trust, I can walk in and say, boom, boom, boom. And they're like, all right, let's do this. And they're gone, right? And so just things like that, you, you can take the same material which you would be teaching the same material, the same content, but the context changes how you would deliver that material because it's a different environment and you want a different experience for people. Well, and it's, it reminds me a lot of Sally Hogshead's work with the fascination system, right? How are you most persuasive? It's the same message presented in different ways by different people. The, in, in Sally's book, not the new one, uh, How the World Sees You, in, in that book, she gives the example of who is it that determines whether a joke is funny or not? It's not the comedian. The comedian doesn't get to decide if their joke is funny. It's the audience that gets to decide whether they're going to laugh or not. And it's the same thing in any type of communication, you know, teaching, conversations, any of it. It's not, I mean, there's, we have a certain responsibility. We have a certain, we certainly have a role to play, mm -hmm. but ultimately it's not in our hands as to how the other person receives what we are giving. You know, value is in the eye of the recipient, I can try and give all the value in the world. And if you're not in a place or if I'm not, if, if you're not going to receive it in the way I'm intending, or, you know, if I'm misreading the room and I'm going with a really aggressive approach and, you know, this is a situation that maybe you would be more receptive to something softer, you know, it's, it's not right or wrong. It's just a matter that there's always two people in that conversation, right? The recipient and, and the giver. Yeah. Which brings us to an interesting point because, We've been talking about delivering experiences and being keen on the context or understanding the context. But when you're creating a course, in a lot of ways, you do have a lot of ability to create that context, right? I can't create the context upon which the learner, like if, if she's got, you know, two under five-year-old kids running around, I can't control that context, Right. But I can set the frame to say, you know what, this course is going to be so that you can, you know, here, here's your expectations. Here's the context that I'm creating. Do you want to be a part of this environment? And it's yes or no, but it's being clear about that. And I think that's where, um, you know, I mentioned sort of the teacher entrepreneur. We can also think of it as a teacher salesperson perspective, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. and I think that's actually where the salesperson perspective can come in really, really well and say, here is here's really what we're doing together and, and going into that. And then the teacher can come and fill that in. Um, let's, I'm curious because um, we've been jamming and riffing about different things. Let's talk about state of learning state of, I was going to say the state of the art, but where we are right now, this is July, 2016. So two years from now, the state of learning is going to be different. Right. Um, but 
let's come up with do's and, or uh, tries to do, (laughs) (laughs) maybe not do this, right? Do's and don'ts, right? Um, So let's start on the do side. What would you recommend here? Uh, the first, the first do is to tap into why the learner cares. Why, why are they invested in this? It doesn't matter if they're buying it or not. I'm talking about emotional, mental investments. Why are they motivated to do this? One of the things we know from research is that we can't really create motivation. You know, this is something, you know, how do I get someone to complete my course? How do I get them? Every parent knows you cannot motivate a child to do anything. And it's the same with all of us, right? We can't create motivation. So what you're far better to do is to tap into the motivation that's already there. So the first question is, what do they already want? What's the outcome that they are already motivated to achieve? Do they want to be able to go for ice cream? Or do they want to be able to have a successful business? Or do they want to be able to live to 90 years old and see their great-grandchildren, right? What's the motivation that's going to get them through the hard part? And it can't, how can you tap into that? And then the second piece of that puzzle is once you've tapped into that motivation, it's, this is where you get to put on your expert hat and say, well, as an expert... What are the things that you know that they should be doing that's going to get them closer, right? It's, this is a lot of what we've been saying. It's, it harkens back to what we were talking about in our last conversation. It doesn't matter. You don't need to give a lot of instruction or a lot of teaching. It's what are they already motivated for? What do they already want? And then can you lay out some steps for them or some questions for them to ask or some things for them to consider that will get them closer to what they already want? To me, that's that's the do's in learning pretty much wrapped up. If it, if it doesn't serve one of those two aims, you don't need it. Yeah. I'm going to add in a third because I, I see this. Be crystal clear about their current state and where you're trying to take them. Yeah. And remember, I think we talked about this last time. You don't have to take them from A to Z. Yeah. Right? If you tell someone this material is going to take you from A to B, and they really want to go to B, right? And so to, to riff on what you said there, like um, don't dig the motivation hole, fill it, right? Fill yes. one that's already there. It's a lot easier and you're actually going to have success. But be clear about that outcome because I think too many people are unclear about what that next step is. Yeah. Well, and, and again, don't try to create an outcome that isn't something that they already want. This is, you know, from a sales perspective, you want to talk about sales perspective, that's a huge problem with people who are creating their systems and, you know, there's their step-by-step formulas. It's like, well, but no one actually wants to buy your formula. They want what they want. And you, you just, you know, what is that outcome for them? What is, what do they want? You know, they don't want the 20 year out thing. They want tomorrow. So what can you get, give them that's going to get them to what they want tomorrow. And, you know, from a business development standpoint, if you are an entrepreneur, you can create more products, right? Take them from A to B and then create another one that's going to take them from B to C. Yeah. I mean, the way I like to talk about this, because I see us do it so often, right, is rather than, you know, Brian were to ask me about, let's say, um, business strategy. Well, I can go through the 55 different books that she might want to read, right, about that, right? Or I can say, honestly, here are the five that you should start with. Read those five, come back and ask me more. 
Yeah. Right. And she might say, oh, I've already like bought that one or two, but yes, have you read it? Right. Then, then you go into that conversation. So and and just, what have you done with it? And what have, have, you, you have you read it? Have you done with it? <laughs> right. What have you done with it? Right. And who did you talk to about it? That's, that's a Charlie step, right? Yeah. <laughs> you don't really need to understand the book until you start talking about it with people. And then you actually understand the idea. Um, but yeah, just, so just think about that, right. When you're seeking to learn something, for instance, I had this experience happen to me and I was super frustrated. I, I went to guardian games. I'm a gamer. You all know this, right? And so, um, I went, and I was like, okay, so I'm thinking about buying this game. What do you know about this game? And so they're like, oh, well that game's kind of cool, but here are these six others that are kind of cool too. And I'm like, but I wanted to know about this game, mm-hmm. right? Cause I was wanting to buy this game. And so then I brought somebody else over hoping that he would help me. He's like, oh, you've got those six. You might want to think about E three, too. Right. And I'm like, but what about the one game? Right. And so then I was like, okay, guys, here are my five desiderata. And I actually said that at the game store. Here are the five things that I want out of the game. And I'm like, okay, well, that eliminates all but these three. <laughs> um, and so it, it ended up being like an hour. I walked out with nothing in my hands. Right. Except for something. <laughs> except for something. Well, actually, they did recommend a game that I hadn't thought about. Right. Um, but it was one of those things to where that that's kind of that learner sort of information to deliver here. Right. I'm in the store. There are way too many games. I wanted to learn how to do how to play this one game because I wanted it with my friends. Yeah. And all of a sudden the teachers came over and started answering questions and giving stuff that I didn't really care about and not helping me with the problem that I had. I, I love that example because I also, you know, Charlie and I have geeked out about games quite a bit. You should have just come to me, Charlie, because I could have told you what to do. But uh, This is true. <laughs> but uh, I think about it a lot in the context of teaching games to people who haven't played them before. And, uh, you know, how, how do you do that? We have a, a games group that gets together and there's a, a few people who are really into games. They're all the one, always the ones who bring the new stuff to try. And then there's a few people who enjoy playing, but they're not, you know, really active into it. And, you know, we, we say this with all the love and kindness in the world. There's one fellow who likes to come and bring new games. And I have learned that I need to go and read the rules before he comes because he doesn't know how to teach a game. You know, he, he gets so excited, but he doesn't know how to teach the game. And so I've actually gone and, and I've actually spent some time thinking about, you know, how do I teach a game to someone? It's, you know, how do I teach this game? And how's that different from this game? And, and how do I adjust it to my audience? You know, have they played this other similar one? And I can say, well, it's kind of like seven wonders, except that, you know, instead of it being in three rounds, is this, you know, blah, 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 blah. And, you know, it's, it's adjusting to the audience. It's working, you know, the first thing you do when you're teaching a game, tell them how to win. And then how do you do that? And then how do you do that? You know, working it from what's the objective, what's their goal. And I will say, you know, if you have not ever tried teaching a game to someone, it is a perfect case study in everything we've been talking about here in terms of how do you actually help someone to have a good time and not feel like, what did I get myself into? Exactly. And I, and, you know, I'm going to put that on our presumptive homework from today's, um, from today's thing is, is to find a game, immediate, medium level of complexity, and learn how to teach that game to different people. You will, by default, learn all the hard things, and it's going to cost you 25 bucks in a few hours and not thousands or hundreds of dollars and a bunch of hours recording videos and doing a bunch of stuff that doesn't matter, right? Um, yeah. And so teach that game. And so, you know, what I will say, quick plug to Corey Huff, one of our mutual colleagues, Corey gets featured so many different things on him. 
So what happens when you hang out with a guy three times a week. Um, <laughs> Corey is great at teaching games, actually. And so we'll go somewhere and I'm like, I want to play this. And then he's a better game teacher than I am, right, around games because he's got more experience doing it. Um, but yeah, take that game and learn how, um, learn how to teach it to other people. You'll go through all of this. Yeah, I'm, glad you, I'm glad we ended up here. I didn't think we were going to go with games as a teaching vehicle. <laughs> um, but turns out, yeah, that's it. Um, so those were the do's. So we, we mentioned three do's. Um, so um, fill the motivational hole. Don't dig a new one. Um, two, um, what was do? Figure out what actions they need to take to get there. Figure out what actions they need to take to get there. So sort of like in between one and two is actually figure out where they are and where they're trying to go. Exactly. Right? Yeah. And then, then <laughs> use the steps to get there. So don'ts. Let's, let's go to don'ts. Don'ts. You know, uh, one of the big don'ts is what we've been talking about, which is don't think content first. You know, teaching is not about content. In fact, don't even think about what you want to teach, right? Uh, again, a study says that when, you, when your first question is, what do I want to teach? You end up creating a less successful transformation than if you focus on our do's. And the first question there is, what do they want to learn? So just change the question, right? Don't think about it as I need to teach or I need to create. Don't make it about you. Focus on them and then respond to that. That's a big don't. Um, another big don't is don't, don't expect that you're going to get it right the first time because you won't. Research actually says it's impossible. It's impossible. There is no technique. There is no magic formula. There's no step-by-step method that will help you as an expert create the perfect learning experience the first time. You just can't. So give up that hope. Don't even try to set that as a goal or as an expectation and embrace the fact that you're just going to be learning along with your learners about what they actually need. Don't, don't try and create perfection from day one. You're just going to say, that's where, I mean, that's where a lot of people get stuck, right? They don't go and create because they get in their head. And the truth is you're aspiring to something that you can't have anyway. So give it up. <laughs> yeah. Do your best. <laughs> um, excellence is attainable. Perfection is not right. Yeah. <laughs> but to get to excellence, you have to bring in your learners, which means you have to be merely good enough for quite a while <laughs> right? Yeah. to get to excellent material. And that's the beauty. That's the grace of it. What I wanted to slide in real quick there is, you know, we're, we're talking in the context of entrepreneurship here. Um, so many people overstuff their courses and screw mm. them up because it's their own self-confidence. Like, Brianne, for you to give me that $25, I have to do all of this or 200 or 300, put whatever you want to on there. Remember, you don't. You just got to get people where you told them you're going to take them. And that place is where they already want to go. Yeah. And so um, understand that scope creep in a course or scope creep in your material is actually a confidence creep. I read a really interesting bit. It was in the context of consultants often run into problems scoping their work. You know, when they get into an engagement with a client and it was uh, in a book from Alan Weiss called Million Dollar Consulting Proposals, he mm -hmm. says, the danger to the consultant is not actually in scope creep because that's when the client comes to the consultant and wants to add more to the project. Instead, the greatest danger to the consultant is in scope seep, which mm -hmm. is when the consultant feels as though they ought to be doing more for the client. And so they add to the scope. And I think the same is true 
of creators, of course creators, educators in general, it's not scope creep that we are falling victim to because it's not that our customers are really wanting bucket loads more from us. It's scope seep where we don't feel like we've done enough. And as you said, it's our confidence that is seeping and creating this behemoth of a problem where they really just, I mean, why, why are they coming to us? Because they're tired of trying to wade through all of the stuff out there. They don't want lots of information. They want curated context. Yeah. Yeah. There's this weird sort of thing as um, consumer learners. I think we talked about this where on the one hand, in our, in our last episode, right? I, I, on the one hand, if you have problem X and I can come in and solve that problem X in three minutes, right? But you paid for an hour of content or an hour of experience. And I'm like, three minutes, we're done, right? And, and from a consumer learner perspective, we would be like, but what about my other 57 minutes? <laughs> I paid for those 57 minutes. Um, at the same time, no one wants to sit around for 57 extra friggin' minutes when they could have figured out in three minutes, right? What to do. And so I, I want to say that that is, it's, it's a known bug in our learning OS, right? And especially in our yeah. consumer learning OS, it's a known thing. I don't know that we can, besides really setting that context up to say, this is going to be a brief course, um, rather than bore you for 57 minutes, we're going to get it done in three minutes. If you expect a longer course, there are plenty of them out there. Don't buy this one, right? Um, you can set that context, but just understand that that's a known bug in our learning consumer OS. Yeah, and it doesn't matter how you try and, you know, you tell the story about, well, you know, the, the plumber, right, who comes and fixes the plumbing or the guy who comes and unlocks your car when you lock your keys inside, right? They take three minutes and it costs you however many hundreds of dollars. And the story that we tell ourselves is, well, you're not paying for the three minutes, you're paying for the 30 years of experience. But that's not satisfactory. I don't care who you are. That's not going to be satisfactory. That's just what we tell ourselves. And yeah, th there's not a solution to that. It's rather more about what expectation are you setting because you can't meet an expectation if you haven't set it in the first place. If you let other people set the expectation for you, you will never meet it. If you go ahead and set that expectation, you will lose some people and they will say, not for me. And that is brilliant and exactly what you want. Precisely. Um, another don't that, that we're going to slide on here is, and this is about the multimedia or transmedia component, right? Um, don't just make the assumption that your course has to, your course or your content has to be X. It has to be in a video because everybody likes video. A lot of people don't like video, right? It has to be audio because everybody's audio. A lot of people don't like audio. So don't just make media, don't make transmedia assets just because you can make transmedia assets. All of your media should be scripted on your learner profile and really what their challenges are. And what you're good at, mm -hmm. right? You know, like I mentioned before, I've started doing Facebook live videos because I can knock out something that's really valuable in a third or a quarter of the time, which then gives me so much more time to be creating other great, valuable things. And you know what? It's not going to be for everyone. And so maybe I look at other ways. But the other thing that comes into it is I find it, this kind of goes to those video tips. How do you get people to take action? One of the things is to not go overproduced. But what we see is you spend so much time like trying to create your video or trying to create whatever you think you should be creating, you know, media and flash and bang and all of, you know, whatever the hat is for you. And 
the reality is one of our earlier don'ts, don't expect you're going to get it right the first time. So why are you spending all of this time trying to produce a video when chances are you're going to run through this, this experience and you're going to find all the flaws with it and you're going to have to redo it anyway, or worse and more common is you'll get to the end and because you invested all of that time and energy in your head, you'll be waiting the trade-offs. Do I really want to go through that all again or is it good enough? And that gets in the way of you ultimately being able to achieve that excellence. It's because we fall victim to the sunk cost fallacy, right? Mm-hmm. I spent all of that time. So just don't spend the time in the first place. Yes. Yes. Um, what I will say on this production, we, we've mentioned it. Sound is important. Good enough video is important. If you're going to spend a lot of time with your content, know your content and know the people that you're talking to. Everything else, be prepared to change. Yeah. (laughs) Spend your time really getting inside their head, understanding the problem, figuring out how to speak about their problems in the ways that they articulate the problem, right? For instance, um, we do a lot of PF around project planning. No creative person wakes up in the morning and says, I've got a project planning problem. (laughs) I'm going to Google how to do, like, that's not the problem. That's not the way that they orient themselves to the problem that they actually have. So I could try to educate people about the fact that they have a project planning problem, or I could just figure out what do you say? Okay, that's better than what I say. I'm going to say that, right? And then tell you how to do that. So um, spend more of your time there. Um, I was talking to Fields yesterday, Jonathan Fields. And um, we were just talking about, you know, um, the fact that the more that we show up and are actually with our people, and and in some ways, that's what we're talking about there with Facebook Live or with um, MiFi, Medium Fidelity, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Production is you spend more time with your people, solving their actual problems. And then there's this really hard thing to do as an entrepreneur, like see when people's eyes, eyes light up. And then replay the last three minutes that got them there. (laughs) And then reproduce that last three minutes. That's it, right? That's really it. Um, Don't overthink that part of it. That's, I mean, that is how in the conversation about all this content and how do you boil it down to three to six minutes, that's how you do it, right? You experiment, you play, you see what resonates. And when you hit on something that resonates, run with that particular piece, get rid of all of the fluff, get rid of everything that was, uh, you know, uh, even an 80% hit, you don't need an 80% hit, you know, focus on Pareto principle, the the 20%, that one gem that gets people's eye, that gets the aha, because that's what you're selling or that's what you're creating or that's what you're trying to get people, you know, a parent with a kid. They just want that kid to get the aha so that everything goes more smoothly, right? That's what we're trying to create is that one moment of transformation. And that one moment of transformation actually neurochemically fires the dopamine. It fires the oxytocin. It fires all those little feel-good hormones in people. Right. And so that's the thing. It's not the content that gets people the delight. It's the experience that gets people to delight. And that's what we've been focusing on. All right. So we have the hardest question to end up today's jam. I have an idea. You're going to have another idea. If we had to pick one game for people 
to buy and teach someone else that might do a great job of teaching them how to teach, but also trigger all the blooms and the different modalities? What game would you pick? That is what I'm going to have to think about for a second here, because before you finished the question, I was thinking one direction, but now I have to think in a different direction because I was, you know, I was going to suggest pandemic, but that doesn't work because then you'll just be quarterbacking and taking over the whole game. So if you're not doing it for this exercise and you just want a really good game to play, then you go get pandemic. Uh, I would recommend Splendor. So Splendor is a very quick to play, very easy to learn, kind of easy to learn, hard to master game. And it's something that you requires some multi-step thinking. It requires you to be able to, you know, make trade-offs and choices, but it's not conceptually hard to understand. And that's where I want you to go as I, you will understand the game. You will not have a hard time getting other people to understand the game. But what I want you to do is see if you can teach someone well enough that they can beat you the first time that they play it. So you'll have to play it a couple times, but I want you to see if you can teach it well enough to someone that they can beat you the first time they play it. I actually played it with my dad for the first time this weekend, and I am proud to say he thwomped me. (laughs) That is fantastic. So Brianne's recommendation is Splendor. My recommendation is Smash Up. And here's why. Um, Smash Up is a um, card-based competitive game. You get to pick different decks like werewolves or ghosts, and you put them together, and it creates different combinations. Um, why it's great is because I think it's really easy to learn how to play, but as much as it, tra- it, it really targets the top three of analyzing, creating, and evaluating as you start creating new options and creating different things on there. So I would go that route. Both games, how much is Splendor? Do you know off the top of your head? It's, yeah, around 20 bucks. It's pretty cheap. Yeah, 20 bucks, pretty cheap. You know, Smash Up is in that one. We'll link to it in the show notes. Um, I trust Brianne because we've gone so much about games that Splendor is a great game. Smash Up is also a great game. So, you're, you know, the fun thing here is we've been talking all this heady sort of content and, and experience and, and, you know, curation. But really, at the end of the episode, we're going to tell you to pick up a game and teach it to someone and have fun because it's the best vehicle for learning how to make um, learning work. Yeah. Brianne, thanks so much for showing up and riffing today. Um, I really appreciate it. And until next time, you know, it's going to be great. Oh, but no, we already talked about the challenge, so I don't need to do that. Thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. That was fun. (laughs) So, so fun. Alrighty, Creative Giants. So um, you heard it from us. We've been talking about how to make learning work, how to make it actually solve the problem of infobesity that we're going through as, as a society. So you could read a bunch of books on instructional development and curriculum development and, you know, adult learning, or you could buy Splendor or Smash Up and teach someone who does not play those games how to do it. Have fun, go out and learn, Go out and teach. And until next time, stand tall. Thanks for listening to the Creative Giant Show. To find more tools and inspiration for creative giants, head on over to ProductiveFlourishing.com. Stand tall, Creative Giant.